Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox. Trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com slash business. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. Hello, and welcome to a very special Warren Buffett edition of Slate Money, which is normally your guide to the business and finance news of the week. But this week, we have decided to dedicate the entire show to capitalism's most avuncular billionaire in honor of the annual meeting, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. We know that all you Slate Money listeners are avid Berkshire Hathaway shareholders who are going to make the pilgrimage to Omaha. And so as a result, we are going to talk a little bit about what it is you're going to find there. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And by Slate's Moneybooks columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. So, Warren Buffett, we, you know, he has this unique uh, status, I think, in not just American, but global capitalism. Somehow, he has made... He has become insanely wealthy. He's always in the top two on the global rich list. But 
never seems to do anything wrong. Like he's untouchable. Everyone loves him. Everyone wants to be like him. Everyone wants to invest like him. He has this aura of amazingness about him. And and people worry that if and when he has to get replaced because all men are mortal, that somehow that will be the end of Berkshire Hathaway. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about whether there's any future for this disparate conglomerate if Warren Buffett is not around. We're going to talk about how he made his money. We're going to talk about whether there might be some seedy underbelly to that. Um, And whatever else comes up on this special Warren Buffett edition, I'm looking forward to it. Um, Kathy, is there anything you would like to kick off? So... Having worked at a quantitative hedge fund, I just want to say, like, we, probably the like furthest away from the Warren Buffett mindset, and we'll talk. I'm sure we're going to talk about how Warren Buffett describes his own tactics for investing in a few minutes. What's called value investing, but just to give just one peek into it, basically, it's like as in his usual folksy way, talks about how you just spend sixty cents for something that's worth a dollar. I mean, that's <laughs> he says that a lot if you read his his writings. And, um, you know, we would have, it's like very opposite of that in quantitative hedge funds. And we would have like philosophical daily lunch discussions about what it means to have intrinsic value. And it would almost invariably conclude that it means nothing. So, so one, of, one of my favorite exercises, there's a big fight in the investor world between what you might call, what you, what you just called value investors and, or yeah. what you might call on a, just even more broadly, fundamentals-based investors who look at things like cash flow and profits and, you know, earnings and all of these kind of things and and say, well, you know, this company on the fundamentals is worth X. And then if I can buy it in the market for some number which is less than X, and that's a way of making money over the long term. And then on the on the other hand, you have people who look at lines on charts and who look at momentum and stuff like that and say, well, if I want to make money, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy something which is going up. And if it goes up in price, then I will make money. And that also works. And And if you actually run the numbers, it turns out that all of this crazy astrology, drawing lines on charts, looking at Fibonacci retracement levels and double tops, and all of these kind of <laughs> you things. just made up those last. I, I I I did not. They actually there's 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 actually something called a dying hanging man formation. Wow. Um, <laughs> wait. <laughs> and and the and you um and it's all bullshit to you know not to put too fine a point on it, but weirdly, if you follow all of the bullshit things about momentum and Fibonacci you wind up making more money. There's no real evidence that fundamentals-based investing actually works with the single exception of Warren Buffett. Like, if it wasn't for Warren Buffett, no one would believe in fundamentals at all. I'm sorry, I need to interrupt. (laughs) Like, there is a slightly different third category where you say, just based on mathematical principles and patterns you know, which aren't named silly right. things. So that's what you were doing at your quant. Yeah. And right. the idea is to say, like, this is a sort of, this is a thing. This is called the market. Like, how no, do there, we there, analyze there are, there are, this? There are other forms of investing. And then the, there's the other one, which is the big macro bets, which, 
George Soros and Ray yes, Dalio yes, do, yes, yes. where they're like, I think I know where the world is moving and I'm going yes. to make a bet because this is the way the world is going. Exactly. But I think you're absolutely right that there was essentially an entire, entire dismissal of the concept of fundamentals. And Warren Buffett was this really like this thorn in everyone's side. Like, why the hell does he actually make money? So, so I have a, a kind of a historical question. I was going back and trying to answer for myself because I'm not a huge Warren Buffett like nerd. I'm, you know, just not. There are people who obsess about this. I think half of Business Insider is devoted to the utterances of Warren Buffett. But, you know, so I, I was kind of reading up on his past and, you know, he dealt with this question in, in, in the 80s. You know, am I just lucky? Am I just like the random number generator? I'm the random number that won every time. Um, and, the way he put it was actually there's a group of people who came from the school of investing that I came from. There were about like 10 people who, if you talked to me 15 years ago, I'm on the record saying these guys are going to make money. And they all came from this idea of value investing that started with a couple of business professors at Columbia University who kind of took them all under their wings. And he said each of these guys has made a bundle. Now, just have, the, have they all sort of disappeared? Have the other investors who are sort of the vanguard of value investing just like, are they no longer around? Did they die? Did they have a big crash? What happened to them? Well, I mean, the other big name there was, you know, in, in, in value investing for a long time. You remember Peter Lynch? Does anyone remember Peter Lynch? Peter Lynch was a god among value investors for a while. Um, he ran something called the Fidelity Magellan Fund, um, which once upon a not that long ago was the largest mutual fund in the world. And he wound up getting unstuck in the dot-com crash and it all came tumbling down. Um, you know, because he'd managed to persuade himself that you know, Yahoo was a value stock or something. But um, th the point is, these things are not well-defined. Yeah. Warren Buffett has done a very good job of investing largely in pretty easy-to-understand industries where he can do his sort of cash flow analysis pretty well. You know, he likes buying stock in Coca-Cola and McDonald's. He owns Seas Candy and railroads, you know. So these are, these are not crazy things about intellectual property. They're not things which are going to get disrupted. But the one thing which I think a lot of the general public misses about Warren Buffett is that the real core of what he does, um, the real secret to how he makes all of his money, is that he is overwhelmingly in the insurance industry. Yeah, mm -hmm. yes. yeah I was going to say okay. that. So we're and and yes. insurance is the heart of what he does. Yeah. And insurance is, is, is a financial services industry thing. And he has he's sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars of other people's money, these insurance premiums, which are going to wind up getting paid out in the future. And he's investing those insurance premiums and, and getting the investment returns before he has to pay out the insurance premium it's a very sort of you know i'm going to try and make money before i need to pay out the money kind of business and it's highly complicated and it's not a simple folk folksy thing at all yeah so there, there was an academic paper that came out a little while ago it's called uh buffett's alpha which is like the amount the alpha is how much more you make compared to the market if you're an investor um how much better you are investing essentially and than uncorrelated the to the uncorrelated market, yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, they kind of got into this. And it, it was interesting for me to read it because what they basically said is there's no one thing that Buffett does that's a, really that special. He does buy cheap stocks, essentially. He's really good at weathering storms and not kind of reversing himself, even if, you know, Berkshire Hathaway's uh, value kind of plummets. He kind of stays the course. Um, and then there's this insurance element, um, which the reason that's key is because it makes it a lot cheaper to Essentially, it's cheaper than taking out a loan. It's cheaper to get money from insurance premiums than it is to go to the markets to raise money. It's, it's a way of investing other people's money, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also add that not only does he have a great, huge insurance conglomerate, but he also doesn't do stupid things like AIG did. I mean, AIG was a big insurer, but it also then th- wrote a bunch of credit default swaps on top of it. And- well, well, okay. So, I mean... Warren Buffett was the guy who famously called derivatives weapons of financial mass destruction. He did that because he wrote a bunch of credit default swaps, which did blow up. Now he's rich enough that he could cope with that. Um, He is much more active in the, you know, very crazy bespoke end of the insurance market than most people realize. In fact, he often both boasts about this, that his insurance head, Andrew Jane, will write policies that no one else will write, that in fact, you know, I think I think in the last letter, his shareholder's letter, he said there were like seven or eight um, policies which have ever been written in the history of the world where the insurance premium was over a billion dollars, and all of them were written by Berkshire Hathaway. These are crazy bespoke things. He does play in derivatives. He you know, he understands these things much better than he might let on. Um, but yeah, he got it right rather than the IG, which got it wrong. I think also, yeah, coming back to the, the whole idea that Buffett only works in areas that he understands. Insurance was one of the first businesses he ever invested in. The, you know, kind of his story partly starts with Geico. He Back in like the 40s, yeah, he's for, buying Geico he, stuff. He went to their office and literally sat down for a four-hour presentation with one of their executives who explained the insurance business to him. He said, this sounds great. And so he put like half of whatever money he had saved up into Geico. And that was sort of the beginning of his plan. And eventually he sold off that stock, but he acquired other ones, reacquired Geico. Um, and that evolved. So this is just an area where, you know, for all the you know, kind of avuncular charm, the Coca-Cola drinking and his love of spaghetti and meatballs or whatnot. He actually is an incredibly sharp mind in this incredibly technical and industry. I also want to throw in exactly to that point that if you read his writings as in, I'm a mathematician and a science communicator, you realize that his folksy language is, a, is he's actually explaining really complicated scientific thoughts okay, with and, and simple language. We need to give an enormous amount of credit to for this one is Carol Loomis. Um, who has written all of his annual letters for decades. Okay. Um, and she's a great, great financial journalist um, who worked for Fortune for decades and um, has always been very close to Warren Buffett. And he's, you know, they, they talk on the phone every day. And she is just an amazing communicator. The two of them together are just so good at communicating concept. C- communication is incredible by this guy and, and her, um, but also this kind of like, unbelievably good salesmanship. I mean, I read this one thing that I think Jordan might have read as well, where he was like, you know, some people don't get value investing. If you don't get value investing in five minutes, it, you're never going to get value investing. Other people do. And just like in that very short paragraph, I didn't even say it perfectly. It makes you, the reader, want to be liked by Warren Buffett and want to be trusted by Warren. You're like, I trust you. Me, me, me. Yeah. Let me give you your, your yeah, money. And, it's and, like this you is, and this is actually a... a small part of the Buffett alpha as well is precisely that 
um, friendly avuncular face that one of the things he loves to do on a regular basis is buy family-owned companies. He buys a few of them every year. And one of the ways that he manages to buy these companies as opposed to all of the other bidders and you know anyone else is that he goes i'm warren buffett don't you want to sell your company to me and then these people who've been who have built up this company in the family for the you know a couple of generations like yes if we're going to sell this company you are exactly the person that we want to and sell our company I, to. And not only that but he brags i'm not going to pay as much as a private equity firm might but don't you want it don't you want to sell it to me anyway and they're like yes because he has this idea that one, when he buys a company, he doesn't go in like the private equity people might and strip it and cut costs and all of that kind of stuff. He says, you just keep on running it the way you've been running it. It works. And you just keep on doing that. The fascinating thing, though, if you look at his portfolio companies, basically there are um, three parts to the Warrant Berkshire Hathaway empire. You have the insurance business. You have the stock portfolio, which is publicly listed stocks, and then you have the companies which Berkshire Hathaway owns. The stock portfolio is companies who, in the stock market, are being encouraged to grow very fast. The private companies are not, interestingly, being encouraged to grow. What Warren Buffett really wants from his private companies is for them to throw off cash, which he can then invest wherever he wants to invest it. If you look at the size of, you know, C's candy today, it's not significantly bigger than it was 30 years ago. If you want growth, I think what you don't do, interestingly, is sell to Warren Buffett. You might want to sell to a private equity company um, because what he really wants to do is take all of that cash which you're generating and use it you know, where it can be put to best use, which is probably not, frankly, in your business. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just worth pointing out that Berkshire Hathaway seems like kind of a almost weird retro company because it's something of a conglomerate. You know, you don't see a lot of those outside of private equity anymore, but it's not a traditional conglomerate like you saw in the, you know, 60s, 70s, the ones that got torn apart and kind of individual companies spun off, where those were essentially just companies building on each other almost for the sake of prestige or for the sake of empire building in a lot of ways. This is a company where these individual firms serve a very particular purpose, which is then like Felix said, fueling these investments, creating the cash, creating the very cheap cash that they can then put into the market. Speaking of cash, um, I understand that Berkshire Hathaway doesn't give dividends. This is the other big thing, and I've written about this at some length. There's a very, very small handful of mature, profitable companies which don't pay dividends. And at this point, now that Apple is the biggest dividend payer in the world, we basically have come down to one. It's Berkshire Hathaway. The reason you know, why Berkshire Hathaway has always made me a little bit uncomfortable, the, the thing which make, feels weird about Berkshire Hathaway to me is that for all that Warren Buffett loves to get these cash flows, he will never, ever give a penny of them back to shareholders. Warren Buffett's shareholders, if you bought you know, a stock, one share of Berkshire Hathaway back in 1952 or whenever it was, um, you have received nothing since then. Literally nothing, not a penny. There was one dividend once and he's he's like, you know, regretted it ever since. <laughs> um, but the only way you can make money by investing in Berkshire Hathaway stock is by selling your Berkshire Hathaway stock. There's no other way of getting any money from it at all. Shareholders 
get no benefit from this. It's a kind of crazy situation which is unique to Berkshire Hathaway and only Warren Buffett seems to be able to get away with it. Well, they get they get to be in the cult of Warren Buffett. And now I'd like to investigate to, to what extent his his like positive aura is deserved. Okay. So coming up, the dark side of Warren Buffett. Is there a dark side of Warren <laughs> Buffett? Um, Warren but Buffett first, dark. let me tell you about Dropbox because it's an exciting thing. Actually, I don't need to tell you about Dropbox. You all use Dropbox. Dropbox is one of the most amazing and ubiquitous services out there on the internet, and you love it. What I'm going to tell you about, which you might not know about, is this thing called Dropbox for Business. And the reason why Dropbox for Business is so cool is that all of your employees are already using Dropbox. So all you need to do is just say, hey, guys, just do this for work. And they're happy because they know how to use it. They love it. And as Kathy will tell you, it's a great way to write books and otherwise collaborate. And, you know, I, I last week I mentioned that I, I wrote a book with Dropbox, but I also uh, used it when I was doing a summer camp teaching thing for, for mathematicians, for nerd, nerd high school kids. Um, and it was like, it was a perfect way to share among sort of an informal group or in, in, in this case, formal group. So if you... Sign up for Dropbox for Business, which I highly recommend that you do. What you do is you get to administer all of those Dropbox accounts. You get all of the visibility you need. You get the discovery things you need, DLP, you name it. There's no storage limits. You get to onboard and offboard and manage accounts and billing and super secure Dropbox infrastructure. You get all of that layered on top of, as far as the people actually using it are concerned, the wonderful, seamless Dropbox experience that they know and love already. Uh, Felix, uh, wait. Uh, we need to tell them where to go. Uh, you can try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com slash business. Again, that's dropbox.com slash business. And uh, that's that's where you can go to uh, give, it a, give it a whirl. So Dropbox is great. It is an awesome company. It is not owned by w- Warren Buffett. It is one of those unicorns which which Silicon Valley has put up. And Warren Buffett is not big into buying Silicon Valley technology companies. I don't think he's ever done it. I don't think he ever will do it. That's not his shtick. I mean, he's actually weirdly very proud of the fact that he never got caught up in the dot-com bubble and never bought those high-flying technology stocks. And when Berkshire Hathaway was underperforming in the late 90s because, you know, the NASDAQ was hitting 5,000, he was like, eh, that's okay. That's just not what I do. And then they all crashed and he looked quite smart. So as an investor, he's good at riding out fads. And that, I think, is a valuable thing. So, Kathy, is there a dark side to Warren Buffett? You know, as much as I like liking him, I'm starting to not like him. I'm starting to uh, suspect he is involved in a pretty skanky underbelly of lending. Um, it's not that far off from what we talked about last a uh, couple weeks ago with subprime auto loans. Um, it's it's a called manufactured housing and trailers, um, trailers basically, yeah, trailer basically homes. trailer homes, single wides. Yeah, and so Berkshire Hathaway is in the business of loans, creating, building everything, it, like from beginning to end. He he really had that. He has this company called Clayton. And Clayton is itself a conglomerate. I mean, mobile homes come in a lot of different brands, but it turns out that a huge number of those brands are all part of Clayton. 
Clayton builds the homes, they sell the homes, they finance the homes, they install the homes, they paint the homes using Warren Buffett-owned paint companies. They're making money every single which way. And the main difference between mobile homes and the homes that the rest of us live in is that the homes that the rest of us live in you know, sometimes they go up in value. Sometimes they might even go down in value temporarily. But in general, they keep their value or go up. Mobile homes, as a rule, 99% of the time, go down in value. They're like cars. They depreciate. Yeah, they depreciate. so you should think of them as cars. So you should think of a loan you take out for your mobile home is a loan you take out for a car. As soon as you drive the car off a lot, it's, you know... $3,000 is off the value or some large percentage. It's Which means that it's, they're, they're not like mortgages. No, they're a lot they're, like They're homes. a lot skeevier in some they ways. They are skeevier. So tell me about the Center for Investigative Reporting and what they've managed to turn up. Well, before that, I just want to start by saying that we should go back a year because if you go back a year, you realize that um, you know Warren Buffett and through his influence on this sort of lobbying group for more manufactured homes, uh, changed the Dodd-Frank bill changed like the regulation around loans for manufactured housing to be much, much more positive for his business, which was already pretty dominant in the field. So this is like a very deliberate act, it seems. But what's actually going on is that some of the same things we saw for auto loans are happening in this manufactured housing um, department. Lots of bait and switch, lots of high interest, lots of extra fees. And basically what you're seeing is people are getting into debt traps around their their trailer homes. I mean... This is this is a kind of contemporary issue with, with what's going on with Warren Buffett. But isn't there also just sort of a critique going back a long time that he hasn't always been involved in super savory businesses? Like, essentially, in the early 90s, he basically he bought a lot of equity in Solomon Brothers, right? And then used his influence and sort of his, again, funkular charm, his reputation to fend off some investigations uh, by the Treasury Department into them. I mean, this isn't the first time that something has come up. He has... Yeah. Gone on the record as saying that was a bad idea. He's kind of regrets that Salomon Brothers misadventure when he was briefly, I believe, the chairman of yes. Salomon uh, Brothers. He, but I mean, it's just, you know. And that's actually been... another thing that he doesn't like getting personally involved in his um, portfolio businesses. He likes delegating. Them, he likes them being run by their CEOs and not by him. And the one time he tried to actually run a business, it was Salomon Brothers and it did not go well. Well, you might say that, Felix, and I. I... Probably he doesn't like it because he probably doesn't like having to do all that work. But at the same time, he reassures people. So I have a quote from him. Home purchases should involve an honest-to-God down payment of at least 10% and monthly payments that can be comfortably handled by the borrower's income. So what he's doing there is he's sort of, it's a PR thing where he's like, I want to help poor people have honest places to live. But then he's owning a company that is doing almost the opposite of that. And also the idea that you know, the, the, again, the, his whole shtick is that he understands his businesses, you know, in the end. So the idea that he doesn't really get what's going on here, it would be sort or if, if someone ever tried to say that, that would, it would be sort of hard to swallow, sort of hard to believe, I think, right? I think it's a, a disingenuous is the right word for it. And it it, it, it it definitely makes you think. I think he was also involved in Moody's back in the day um, when they were doing such terrible... He was indeed a major shareholder in Moody's. Yeah, I mean, there, th- th- this is sort of the danger of... Uh, trying to beatify an investor, right? Like they're, they're not saints. They're going to make decisions. Not everything they do is going to be based, uh, even if it's more above, it's going to be based on some sense of higher good. There is, the man is competitive and likes to make money. And, you know, he understands the business. He likes the business. He may not necessarily have the best interests of his customers in heart all, at heart all the time. Or shareholders. Or sh- now, do you think that Clayton Holmes is bad for yeah. Berkshire Hathaway shareholders? 
No, just thinking that, you know, as you said, Felix, like Berkshire Hathaway shareholders just get this ticket to be in the cult of, of Warren Buffett. They don't necessarily get money from it. Right, exactly. Like it's it's investments. I mean, investments, we've covered this in many episodes of Slate Money, are a hobby for rich people. You know, it's a way for rich people to get richer. And so in that sense, maybe it, this is just a logical conclusion that what Warren Buffett is saying is that if you invest in Berkshire Hathaway, I will make you richer, but you won't be able to spend any of that money. The only way you can spend the money is by no longer owning Berkshire Hathaway stock, by selling the stock and no longer being invested in me. It's it's a way of locking people in. And it's basic, he's basically saying, you guys are so rich, you don't need the money. You don't need to be able to live off, you know, dividends or I, I, I don't need to give you any kind of income because you guys are the rentier classes. You have more than enough income from other sources. You know, It's a little bit distasteful in the sense that most, if not all, financial instruments, you know, real, normal financial instruments, stocks, bonds, the idea is that their value is the present value of their future cash flows. Yeah. You, you discount the future cash flows and that's how much that thing is worth. The future cash flows of, Warren, of Berkshire Hathaway stock are zero. <laughs> you know, it is a great irony, actually, if you think about it that way. I mean, well, you know, when I when I say cash flows, I mean dividends. But there is a you know a theory of stock pricing that the value of any stock is equal to the net present value of its future dividend. And he poo poos all that kind of talk. No, and- he doesn't. But he just like he he he's like I'm I'm an exception, and that's also where Berkshire Hathaway. No one quite knows whether it's a company or whether it's essentially a gussied up mutual fund, you know, a place to put your money, you know, and keep your investment safe as opposed to something to invest in. So I kind of have a question here. Do you think the returns to shareholders would be better long term, assuming they do sell eventually, if they were getting dividends, or if he's taking that money that would otherwise be spent, that cash would otherwise be given back to shareholders and reinvesting it and building Berkshire's empire further and further and investing it in more stocks and, and more growth companies? I mean, which... Which is better, assuming that one day people are ready to sell their shares and, and, and make back their money? Yeah, so what does he do with all that cash instead well, of he, giving he, it back? He reinvests it. Yeah. He basically says, I'm better off investing that money than you are, so let me invest it rather than you. But I think this is a very dangerous assumption, okay. Jordan, because he's, he, he's saying, I want to be the exception. He's not saying that people shouldn't live off their dividends. He's not saying that like using dividend income as income is a bad idea. He's just saying, don't do that with my stock. Do it with the other stock that you own. And so when you're saying, well, people will sell it eventually, what what you're saying is you're buying into this exceptional um, status that he wants, that well, you should... Uh, you should treat Berkshire Hathaway stock differently from the stock that you actually live on. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to kind of write off that concern um, that he wants special treatment. I'm just, I'm just wondering, just as a matter of math, like which would you know? It, I, I don't know if there's a way to answer this question. But if you were to do a, a counterfactual where he did pay a dividend, where would well, the stock be well, now? Obviously, versus... it would be much lower. Yeah, right? because. You know, because you, all of those reinvested dividends are no longer reflected in the stock price. Yeah. So I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like he's exceptional because he is exceptional. I feel like he's like a relatively good empire builder. And um, 
And I guess the question I have is like, why, if he's so, if, if this is so simple and if he's so good at it, why don't more people do this? Well, I don't know if people, if it's, if it's simple. Yeah. I think it's not. I think it's, you do have this, there are lots of somewhat normal elements combined in an exceptional way. You have the insurance business combined with this guy who does have an alpha as an investor, who does do some things right consistently and has managed to avoid traps uh, that have taken down his friends like jumping on to the tech boom and so it all just has kind of coalesced but you know other people could do one part of it it's not clear anyone else would have been able to do all of it so let's move on to the future but before we talk about the future we're going to talk about zip recruiter a new sponsor which we're very excited about jordan so in economics, there's this idea called thick labor markets, and it's a pretty straightforward concept that explains why companies like to set up shop in San Francisco or New York or Dallas or Los Angeles. And it's just that when you're in a city or a place that has lots and lots and lots of talent, you're more likely to find the perfect person for your company. The problem is even if you are in San Francisco or you are in New York, you still have to find all that talent and find the absolutely perfect person you're looking for. And that can be a real pain in the butt if you have to go onto a thousand different job boards and post the opening that you have. So there is a solution to this, however. There's a company called ZipRecruiter. Using them, you can post to more than 100 different job sites with a single click. And of course, that gives you the highest possible chance of finding the perfect candidate for your job. You just have to post once and within 24 hours, you know, the candidates are just going to roll in over their interface, which is super, super easy to use. And already ZipRecruiter is being used by more than 300,000 businesses. So, of course, this being Slate Money, we have a special offer for you. You can try ZipRecruiter today for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. So the future of Berkshire Hathaway um, and of Warren Buffett, there's, there's two big questions here, I think. The first one is what happens, not to put too fine a point on it, when Warren Buffett retires. I'm going to say retires because I don't want to say dies, but it's probably the same thing because he's not showing any signs of, <laughs> really? signs of wanting to retire. No. Plus um, with that diet. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> there's never really been an obvious heir apparent. Um, he now has a couple of investment managers called Ted who are quite good at... <laughs> he collects the Teds. He collects the Teds. And, 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 and what's quite possible, I think, is that this weird having it both ways thing that he gets to be an investment manager and run businesses, you know, might not work quite as well in the future. And, you know, the Ted's will run the investments and someone like Andrew Jane might run the businesses and it will become more obvious, like how much of a difference there is between the two. And quite possibly the whole thing might wind up getting broken up. And one of the interesting, fascinating questions is, is is Berkshire Hathaway actually a breakup play? Now it's far too big. It's worth over a hundred billion dollars. You know, it's far too big to, for for a private equity company to just come in and and sell it off for spare parts, as it were. But in principle, if you do a sum of the parts analysis, Berkshire Hathaway has not actually been trading at much of a premium to its book value, and its book value is much lower than its actual value because they're carrying a whole bunch of businesses on their books, which are worth much more now than they paid for them um so i you know it's entirely possible that when warren buffett dies if you know if there's shareholder um desire to just say okay let's 
we, we've had our run now. Let's just collect our dividends. That's the big dividend thing where they start selling off all of the businesses that they spent 60 years accumulating and then you it goes up in value quite a lot. That, the ironic part there is that's where the whole value investing thing got started. There, there was the His mentor, um, Benjamin Graham, used to call them, I think, like cigarette, uh, cigar butts. It was just companies that if you sold off them for sold them off for spare parts right now, they'd be worth more than their trading value essentially the market cap and that was or so that and that was that was where he kind of learned his trade so in a way i guess there's something, coming full circle yeah coming full Is circle Berkshire hathaway itself so, a oh, cigar butt yeah a cigar butt a value <laughs> the world the world's most expensive cigar butt so so the question of who is the next Warren Buffett i'm sure this is like i mean not being in the in the cult i'm sure that there's like probably lots of investigative jur- journalists and like you know PIs that just follow around Warren Buffett's posse looking for the person that gets to sit next to him the most often and things like that does he have someone well the headquarters of Berkshire Hathaway I think has a headcount of 25 it's really oh, so, okay. really small pretty small group um he's very proud of that um but there is one person he is very close to oh who's that and his name is George Paolo Lemon okay um who I have known about for many, many years because he used to run a bank in Brazil when I used to write about Brazilian banks called Banco Garantia. Banco Garantia was an amazing bank. They always had much better information than anyone else in Brazil and they would make insane amounts of money. And eventually they sold to Credit Suisse for a gazillion dollars. And George Paolo Lemon went on to um, start a private equity company, which was initially called GP Investments and is now called 3G. It's um, And, you know, he bought um, Ambev, which was this big brewer in Brazil, which then merged with Interbrew, which was an even bigger brewer in Belgium, which then merged with Budweiser, which was an even bigger brewer in, heard of them. Um, in, in the United States. And he is amazing at running these companies. He makes them much more profitable. He is the world's toughest co- cost cutter. If you work for any of his portfolio companies, you are having a miserable life. Yeah, you ar- get no benefits. Arguably a big part of the reason why your beer is so watery now across the <laughs> entire world. Because like, that's what Put happens. more water in. <laughs> Thin it Last out. taste. Um, but yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you know, even you know, top senior executives are, not, are only allowed 100 business cards a year and that kind of <laughs> stuff. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Is that Warren Buffett's style? Well, it's not, but Warren Buffett really, really likes he, he's, George Paolo. He's then. referred to him as his professor for, like, all things Brazil. <gasps> like, he's... Oh, okay. But, I mean, like, that still, that's, that's like, an amazing honorific to bestow. He's like, you're the person who's teaching me about this country. Yeah. And he tells you about their relationship. And plus, the 3G and Berkshire Hathaway have some investments in common. So, for instance, they bought Heinz together. And, you know, this is a good folksy kind of, you know, core Warren Buffett acquisition. What's more American than ketchup? But Warren, but Warren Buffett didn't buy Heinz. He, he financed um, 3G's acquisition of Heinz, essentially with a mixture of debt and equity and warrants and all manner of clever things which he doesn't like to talk about too much. But, you know, and this is, again, you know, he does this quite a lot. He made a fortune on Goldman Sachs with... Um, with similar instruments. But he has discovered that it's actually very profitable for him to not just buy these companies and sit back quietly while they run themselves, as he has been doing up until now, but actually 
co-invest with with 3G and then let 3G be a much more activist owner than he ever would be and see 3G really transform these companies and make them much leaner and much more profitable. And Warren Buffett gets all of the dividends from that without having to be the axe man himself. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, again, outsourcing the dirty work to some degree, which I mean, would probably, although I I feel like to some extent, that's beginning to tarnish his image a little bit in the U.S. There was, a, you know, there's a similar deal with what was going on with um, Burger King and their move to Can- potential move to Canada, and people started talking about how Warren Buffett stood to benefit from the the tax. Because that was that was another deal which he did with 3G was yeah. Burger King. Exactly. So it's like a good cop, bad cop thing. In other words, yeah, it but, is. And the question is whether the bad cop should ever be put in charge. And it, there's all. Well, I, I I doubt, frankly, that George Paolo Lemon would ever take over Berkshire Hathaway. Although nothing's impossible. Um, but it's not just a good cop, bad cop. Interestingly, it's a domestic cop, international cop thing. One of the fascinating things about Berkshire Hathaway is by the standards of multi-gazillion dollar companies, it is about as American as any of them get. Warren Buffett really understands America. He invests in America. He's made big bets on America when he bought um, Burlington Northern Railroad. He's like, this is a big bet on America, which paid out very well. Um, but he's always been much more hesitant to, to make huge bets internationally. Whereas George Paolo Lemon, on the other hand, is Brazilian. He's Swiss as well. He has like dual citizenship. He invests all over the world. He has a much more sort of cosmopolitan and international worldview. And it seems to me almost tautologically obvious that if there's going to be another Warren Buffett, it's not going to be someone who's as parochially American as Warren Buffett is. So the question of will there be another Warren Buffett is not not in the United States. We've had our run. And in a way that also, you know, you hear a lot of talk about Warren Buffett as sort of um, his career tracking the, the broader swing of American capitalism to some degree. He was getting in when it was a really time to be getting in and he's ridden that wave. So in a way, maybe when he's gone, the next wave will be, the next guy will be riding the international wave. I think so. I think that you know, the as as Warren Buffett himself will be the first to admit, he was incredibly lucky yeah. in terms of timing. He got in at exactly the right time and ran up, you know, the world's largest ever bull market, basically. He was investing in stocks long before anyone was investing in stocks, and then everyone else started investing in stocks, and then all of the cheap stocks that he bought in the early days became expensive because everyone was buying them, and he made lots of money that way. Um, you can only do that once. And can, yeah. I, can I change the subject just a little bit to, uh, well, going back to Warren Buffett dying at some point. Um, <laughs> isn't he one of those guys that signed up for like the Bill Gates, I'll give all my money away thing? So yeah. he, so his philanthropy, um, and I think maybe we should end on this up point because we are sending this podcast out to people who are going to the annual meeting and they all love Warren Buffett. So let's let's really applaud Warren Buffett's philanthropy because he did two things which are almost unprecedented and both are really, really great. Uh, the first thing is he didn't set up a foundation. He's more or less the only billionaire who has a major philanthropic business going on who didn't set up a foundation. Everyone loves setting up a foundation because all you do is you you know, put a different label on your billions and they're still effectively your billions and you still control them but now it's charity. Yay! Um, and, <laughs> and Warren Buffett had no interest in that and he said he he he's very close with Bill Gates. And he says, you know, you've thought a lot about how you're giving your money away. 
And I think you're doing a good job at it. And I think you're doing a better job at it than I could do. So I'm just going to give all of my money to the Gates Foundation rather than to try and come up myself with a better way of, of spending philanthropic money. So that was really great. Just give your money to charity rather than set up your own charity. This is what most of us do, but very few billionaires. But it still goes to a foundation at the end. Ah, but this is the next thing which he did, which is even better and is almost completely unheard of. He is donating most of his money to the Gates Foundation in a series of annual installments. Each annual installment has to be spent that year. This is not just I'm giving more money to the foundation so the foundation can sit on it and spend 5% of it each year. This is I'm giving you, you know, $4 billion this year. You need to spend $4 billion this year. You need to spend every single penny that I give you this year on charitable activities. I'm not interested in creating a permanent foundation which is going to live in perpetuity. I'm interested in making a difference right here, right now with my money right here, right now. And that I think is amazing. That is something which we very, very, very rarely see is is philanthropists actually trying to spend all of their money now rather than just setting up a foundation which will spend 5% in perpetuity. So he's not a saint, but he does good. But that is excellent. And, and in that sense, he's actually a better philanthropist than, than Bill Gates because the Gates Foundation itself, the Gates money as opposed to the Buffett money, that only gets spent at 5% pace. The Buffett money has to get spent at 100% pace. And that's, I, I love that so much. Hmm. I've also heard that the people who work for him are highly devoted to him. I mean, at least some of them. So... So we he did we, marry his secretary. <laughs> oh God, that whole story. <laughs> I just I just want to throw you know uh, just like not not all of the corners of his huge uh conglom- you know huge company are dirty. I mean we most of the stuff that is totally above board. So I don't want to paint him out to be a devil either. He's not a devil. He's a good philanthropist. He's a very rich man. And and weirdly, you know, no matter how many billions he gives away to the Gates Foundation every year, he always still remains the richest man in the world. It's like the more you give away, the the less <laughs> successful you are in actually becoming less rich. Um, but eventually... It's a great problem to have. Yeah. He will not be around in Berkshire Hathaway. I have to admit, I suspect that Berkshire Hathaway in its current weirdly unique form won't be able to last much beyond his death. Yeah. I think it, this is a creature of Warren Buffett, which only really makes sense when Warren Buffett is running it. Well, you, also, you need someone with the institutional ability to prevent everyone else from kind of veering off course, right? Like that part, if part of their secret is doing the same thing, more or less, for 50 years. Not many people can convince all the other executives in their company to keep doing it. Someone is going to want to put their thumbprint on the company, and they're just like, institutionally, something will probably go wrong. Nobody can follow him is the problem. It's That's really, generally the problem with a cult, cult of personality, which he definitely has. Then again, hey, Tim Cook. Yeah, you no, know, it's a counterexample. Maybe that's it. Well, we'll, see, we'll, see, we'll see how many Apple watches he manages <laughs> to sell this year. Do write in if you've got yourself an Apple watch and tell, tell us what you think of it, because it's not like we've read 17,000 reviews of the thing already. <laughs> um that is it for the Warren Buffett special edition of Slate Money. Thank you for listening to us. And do please subscribe to Slate Money, which you can find in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. Write to us about Warren Buffett, about Apple Watches, or especially this week about personal finance, because we have Carl Richards coming on next week. We'd love to hear from you. The email address is 
sleetmoney at sleet.com. The producer for Slate Money this week was Audrey Quinn. The managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check out all of the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman, host of the Slate Panoply podcast, The Moment. This week's guest is best-selling author John Acuff. John might be in the self-help category, but when you picture him, don't picture a, a huckster trying to tell you what to do. He is a bracingly honest and hilarious person. And before he tells you what to do, he always looks deep inside himself, like he did on this week's episode of the show. I knew I wanted to be an artist and an author, and I was telling people to do brave things, and I wasn't doing brave but things. But that's what I want to know. What did that feel like? So what did that, that felt horrible? Feel like? Yeah, that felt horrible. You can find the moment at iTunes.com/slash/the-moment or Slate.com/slash/the-moment. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.